podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Today on the 1012 Podcast, Eric Lopez of In the Circle joins us to preview the Big 12 Softball Championship. Keegan Renault talks the best landing spots for Big 12 players from the NFL Draft. Then Ashlyn Anderson and Haley Harper of Kansas Softball talk about their careers in Lawrence and this incredible year with some fantastic stories, plus Bob Huggins, name changes, win totals, and more. Welcome to the 1012, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference, plus BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. We are the flagship show of the 1012 Network and partners with Sports Drink, your water cooler for sports and not sports, a fantastic podcast network in their own right. I'm your host, Philip Slavin. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. Four great guests coming up. Eric Lopez to preview the Big 12 softball tournament that gets underway today. Thursday with three games this morning. Schedule got bumped up due to weather. Keegan Renault is going to talk about NFL draft landing spots, the best ones for players from the Big 12 who got drafted a couple weeks ago. And Haley Harper and Ashlyn Anderson, two seniors for the Kansas softball team, join the show. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic and fun interview. Lots of great stories. Just, just wonderful interview. You guys stick around for all of it. It's a great show. We got a lot to get to before we can even get to the interviews because, oh, the news just keeps coming and coming and coming. Man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Okay, let's let's start with this. The win totals came out last week after the episode had been released. It was on Friday, our first taste of win totals for the season. We will do win totals. We will talk about that with Daniel Alexander here in a couple weeks. We'll, we'll break those down ourselves once he's ready and I'm ready. But just a few initial thoughts off the top. Texas Tech, seven and a half. With a game against Oregon in the non-con where they will be a dog. Start preparing yourselves, folks, for a Texas Tech team that we picked to finish the top half of the conference by the time the summer gets over. And I think the Texas Tech hype train is only going to continue to build this summer. I'm not on it like I was Kansas State last offseason, but I do understand it. I do. It's a very interesting one. Oklahoma and Texas at nine and a half. That makes them the odds-on favorites to reach the Big 12 title game. I mean, it's, it's, it's no wonder considering how easy both teams' schedules are. And the Big 12 has no one to blame but itself for that. Texas, again, we've talked about this, we'll keep hammering this home, only leaves the state of Texas twice this coming season, once to visit Alabama and again to go to Ames in November. You talk on OU schedule, which will be a 3-0 non-conference schedule. Arkansas State, SMU, and Tulsa. They're supposed to play Georgia, got canceled because the SEC. Yeah, they got to go to Cincinnati to open Big 12 play. The Cincinnati team with a whole new coaching staff. It's not the same Cincinnati. Of course, they had to face Texas. They'll be a dog there. They get UCF in Norman. They avoid Kansas State. They avoid Texas Tech. In fact, if you look at the teams with the highest projected win totals, Texas, of course, they're going to face Texas, obviously. There's no Kansas State. There's no Baylor. There's no Texas Tech. Baylor, Texas Tech, both with seven and a half. Kansas State, eight and a half. The other seven and a half is TCU. They've got TCU on the schedule. They do have to play TCU. In Norman, the last week of the regular season. It's an easy schedule for Oklahoma. It's why the nightmare scenario is in play. I talked about this on an Oklahoma podcast. 
Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12 championship game in Arlington is the nightmare scenario for the Big 12. It is. And it's not just because, man, that would stink that, that Oklahoma and Texas got there in their final season in the Big 12 before they left for the SEC. If that happens, one of them is guaranteed to win the Big 12. They both get there and keep everybody else out, and there's nothing you could do about it. It's one thing to play a game against Oklahoma and lose to them. Say you're, you're OSU, lose Bedlam again. You're going to schedule that game sometime in the future. Maybe you beat them and, and, and hey, we reclaim. We're, we won the last game. You're Texas Tech. Anybody. Anybody who loses to Oklahoma. Ha-ha. Oh, you won the last one. They have bragging rights until you face off again. There's no way to do that with this. If Oklahoma and Texas make the Big 12 title game, there's no way to be like, well, uh, well Texas Tech beat you in, in Norman in 2035. It's not the same thing. It's not. There is no way to fix this. The ball is in their court, and they are never going to have to give it back. They will literally take that ball, shred it, stab it, rip it to pieces, throw it on a bonfire, turn it to ash, and that's it. The worst case scenario for the Big 12 this year is Oklahoma and Texas making it to Arlington, and they both have the highest odds. The Big 12 has no one to blame but themselves for it and the way they stacked this schedule because all the new incoming teams wanted a shot at Oklahoma and Texas, and a lot of them got that. Well. It was all fun and games laughing about the idea of, ha they have to play UCF and travel to Cincinnati until Oklahoma and Texas's talent on their roster helps to beat all those incoming teams. Not great. Not great. Uh, speaking of betting numbers, because we're talking about win totals, like you all know the story in regards to Iowa and Iowa State, and the allegations that have been alleged Iowa State University's Department of Intercollegiate Athletics is aware of online sports wagering allegations involving approximately 15 of our active student-athletes from the sports of football, wrestling, and track and field in violation of NCAA rules. That is from the statement that Iowa State issued. The university has notified the NCAA and will take the appropriate actions to resolve these issues. When asked if Iowa State student-athletes had been suspended... Iowa State Senior Associate Athletics Director Nick Jews told the Register, that's the Des Moines Register, it's an ongoing process, and until it is complete, we can't comment further. According to the NCAA website, NCAA rules prohibit participation in sports wagering activities and from providing information to individuals involved in or associated with any type of sports wagering activities concerning intercollegiate, amateur, or professional athletics competition. Sports wagering has the potential to undermine the integrity of sports contests and jeopardizes the well-being of student-athletes and the intercollegiate athletics community. It also demeans the competition and competitors alike by spending or spreading a message that is contrary to the purpose and meaning of sport. I don't think there's a lot of student athletes that listen to this, but if, if you were friends with one, I just want you to tell them this. Just don't. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. Because if you think this would be some one-off event where you got punished, you're going to face a suspension. Wrong. Do you think if you're someone who has prospects to go pro, that the pro league is going to look fondly on the fact that you got caught gambling? We have just saw players get suspended for a year and for some, for six games, for gambling. There are guys who got suspended for six games just because they were gambling on the premises. They weren't even gambling on NFL games. They were just at the practice facility gambling, and they're suspended. This is something that will carry with you through the rest of your career. You do more than just end your college career doing this. It could end your playing career. Just don't. You're going to get caught. It's going to happen. 
you're not smarter than Vegas or the U.S. Integrity, which is a company that looks for unusual betting patterns and figured some of this stuff out, specifically the stuff with Alabama, who had to fire their baseball head coach. Now, look, all of that said, I don't think the current rules make sense. Gambling is everywhere. It's advertised on every sports website. Conferences are partnering to sell data to sports books. It is a part of sports. It's a part of college athletics. It is here to stay. I think the rules should be simple and similar to the NFL's rule. Don't bet on your sport and don't beat at team facilities. For college, let's just say campus. If you do, the punishment is simple and harsh. You're banned. Your college career is over. I, I think that's fair. Sorry, you're in college for maybe five years. You've got plenty of time to gamble. It's not a requirement. It's not your livelihood. It's a recreational activity. Just be smart. I'm fine loosening the rules, but I'm also fine saying if you break a rule that's really easy to not break, you get a punishment that fits that because we have to crack down on this. Sorry. Last note on this. It's time to make injuries public. Not at kickoff, not five minutes for the game, not even on game days beforehand we have to make injuries in college athletics public knowledge the alabama head baseball coach got fired because he was letting someone know about his starting pitcher being injured luke holman was scratched shortly before the game with back tightness that's the kind of insider information he was offering someone when he got caught and got fired the nfl provides injury reports every wednesday thursday and friday i don't want to hear about college coaches complaining because oh it's going to give the other team an edge. We got to have this information. Stop it. It's time for college to follow the suit. If this is going to be a thing, if gambling is going to be this integrated, if we're going to have ESPN's morning shows talking about it, if it's going to be a conversation used everywhere in college, then it's time to do what the NFL and pro leagues do. It's time to issue injury reports. Just It is. Because it's the only way you're going to avoid the kind of thing that happened with Alabama baseball. It just is. Just make injury reports. Just do it. We'd all be happier for it. We'd all be better off for it. It'd be good. All right. Uh, should the Big 12 Conference adopt a new name? No. No, they should. You can change the number if you want. If the conference hit 16 teams, maybe. But I, I think we're long past the number mattering. Here's the issue. The Pac-12 can change its number because it's the Pac that matters. Pac-12, Pac-10. It's the pack. The Big Ten is a brand. Doesn't matter how many teams are in that conference. You know what the Big Ten is. The Big Ten's not about the 10. It's about the brand. The level of brand recognition is what the Big 12 is striving for. Look, in our circle of Big 12 fans, it's obvious. The diehard college athletics fans, you know the Big 12. But I don't think the brand has the strength of the SEC, ACC, Pack, or Big Ten. And it will have less strength after Oklahoma and Texas leave. If you're going to make a change, the only change I would consider is finding a way to make the Big 8 make sense again, because it would sure be fun to bring that back around. But the reality is, it's the Big 12. It's got to stay the Big 12. It doesn't matter how many teams you have in this conference. There is enough of a brand established that now it's just time to build it. So your mark, build that brand. Build that Big 12 brand into something that everyone, even the casuals, recognize know and understand no name change all right bob huggins i think at this point we all know what he did uh, we all know what he said i'm not going to play it i'm not going to repeat it i'm not going to do it we now know what west virginia will do to air quotes punish bob huggins 
Three-game suspension, which is laughable. That's Missouri State, Monmouth, and Jacksonville State, all in Morgantown. A $1 million salary reduction. Okay, that's legit. That's legit. Sensitivity training. This guy's in his 60s. He's gone through enough sensitivity training. He knows better. Like, that, that sounds great. There's a note that any similar behavior will result in an immediate termination. That is some strong and harsh language. But the thing that matters the most is this. Huggins' multi-year deal is now a one-year deal. His current employment contract will be amended from a multi-year agreement to a year-by-year agreement that will begin on May 10th, 2023, that's Wednesday, and end on April 30th, 2024. Bob Huggins is now on a one-year deal. His contract will end the end of April next year. West Virginia has written themselves an out. If you're asking me right now, and I don't like predicting these things because it's, it's such a hard thing to read. But if you're asking me right now, come May 1st, 2024, Bob Huggins will not be the head coach of the West Virginia men's basketball program. This gave them an out. It's, always, it's, it's felt like the end of Bob Huggins' career was getting closer and closer every year. Anyways, they've been fine in Morgantown. Yes, they've, they've got a heck of a, a transfer portal class coming in. Maybe they have an awesome season. He makes a finishes top four in the Big 12, makes a deep a Sweet 16 Elite Eight run in the NCAA tournament, and he buys himself another year. Winning solves a lot of things. That's, that's ridiculous and stupid and shouldn't be how it is, but it is. If he has a big year, he'll be back, he'll be back for 2024, 2025. But if this season goes like the last few, May 1st, 2024, West Virginia's men's basketball will be on the hunt for a new men's basketball coach. It was a lot. We've got a lot to get to. It's a long episode, but it's a good one. And if you're a Big 12 softball fan like myself, you stick around. Let's just do it. Big 12 softball tournament gets underway on Thursday. Three days of incredible softball in Oklahoma City. And so we needed to preview it specifically from the viewpoint of how games this weekend will impact teams for the duration of the postseason, regional, supers, and so on and so forth. Joining us today, our good friend uh, from In the Circle podcast, Eric Lopez. Eric, welcome back, sir. It's good to be back with you. It's the best time of year here with postseason getting underway in softball. I believe they call it mayhem. Mayhem, that's our thing. You know, we had to come up with something to duplicate what basketball does with March Madness. So mayhem is what we uh, people came up with. I like it. I like it. All right. So as we mentioned, the uh, the tournament uh, in Oklahoma City gets underway uh, on Thursday. Uh, We have Iowa State versus Baylor, Texas Tech versus Texas, Kansas versus Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma awaiting the winner of that Baylor and can and uh, and Iowa State game at this point. I mean, you do bracketology uh, uh, for extraneous uh, softball. Thank you. I was like, it's not D one softball. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, at this point, it, there are four teams locked into the postseason. That would be Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, and Baylor. And and any of the other teams, the three current teams in the Big Twelve. Iowa State, Kansas, or Texas Tech are going to have to win the whole tournament if they're going to have a shot at the postseason, correct? Agreed, 100%. I think that's pretty uh, cut and dry. Uh, it's the easiest conference to really forecast from that standpoint. Uh, the other, you know, the, the other, everybody knows what they have to do. The big drama is, will the Big 12 be able to actually get 
four teams not only be in the tournament, but host regionals. Uh, that's going to be the big plot line that will be somewhat impacted by how the Big 12 tournament goes. A league, by the way, that is the number one conference in college softball, according to the RPI, not the SEC, not the Pac-12. Uh, it's the Big 12. It has been a monster year for the Big 12 in softball, and certainly it's very promising moving ahead what we could be in store for next year uh, with the way the teams are performing this year in the Big 12 and some of the improvements. I mean, you know, Texas Tech may not make the tournament, but they're improved under Craig Snyder. Uh, you look at Kansas, they're improved under the, uh, in the, with this, this season. And then Iowa State, you know, I remember we were on, last time I was on with you, they were struggling. We were kind of figuring out what was going on. Since then, they've been on a tear. They beat Oklahoma State. And then they've beaten, you know, they've got on a good streak, beat Baylor two out of three. Jamie Pinkerton, this is the Cyclone team that I think he thought would he would have the entire year. So this Big 12 this year, it's been pretty phen- uh, impressive. It's wild to me that Iowa State, as much as they struggled this year, finished fifth in the Big 12 in front of one of, Co- I think, Coach McFall's best Kansas team and a Texas Tech team that has, while up and down because of just, you know, inconsistent hitting, but the ceiling on Texas Tech for them to finish behind Iowa State, the way Iowa State was playing, is just, it's wild. It's absolutely wild to me. Um, you, you noted Big 12, number one RPI conference. I mean, when you have four teams in the top 20 or seven, top 17 in adjusted RPI, that plays a big role in that. And I think Iowa State's resurgence all the way back down from, they were as low as 149th in the RPI, all the way up now to 76th, I think has done a, a big thing for the Big 12 and able to take that top spot in the in the overall RPI. There's no question about that. And, you know, I thought Iowa State would have a chance to be the fourth best team in the Big 12 before the year. They have a lot, a core of that team had made the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago. They just get off to a terrible start. Sometimes that happens with teams in a season where you just, nothing, nothing goes right. You lose some close games. You don't hit in timely situation. I think that was the story for them, but they have turned it on here in the second half of the year to the point where, you know, if Oklahoma wasn't in the conference, I would say they could be a dangerous team to steal the bid and win the conference. Unfortunately, Oklahoma is still, uh, for them anyway, is still in the league. But uh, they, Jamie's done a good job there, and he's always done. Iowa State's always a well-coached team. Uh, and I think if you're a Cyclo fan, the positive is, you know, look, you're playing, you're finishing strong. You hope that with the, you know, some of the players back next year that you could be kind of pick up where you left, you're leaving off this year. It's, it's kind of an anticlimactic Big 12 tournament. You look at most of the tournaments around the country and there's a lot of intrigue and excitement of who can who can get the win. Teams need to get wins and make deep runs to, to change their postseason standing. But with the Big 12, you have Oklahoma who's lost one game all season. It just feels like an inevitability of after finishing an undefeated Big 12 season, Oklahoma is going to win the Big 12 championship in Oklahoma City as well. Now look, obviously Oklahoma State was able to pull off the upset last year and, and win the tournament. So something could happen. We could see it up upset occur but it's just it feels even less likely this year than it did last year given just how good this Oklahoma team is how deep this roster is that Oklahoma is going to win this which I look I'm still very excited for this championship and this tournament to see some of these matchups but it does take a little bit of the excitement out of it when it feels like the end result is a bit inevitable you just described the entire college softball season. Like I feel, yeah. I, feel I feel like everybody feels that way. Like it's only a, a, anticlimactic. It feels like that Oklahoma will win the national championships, and it's this kind of this, the the Big Twelve is an example of that. It's not guaranteed, uh, but the pro, the thing is, 
their pitching staff is better than ever. That's the big difference. In the last couple of years, you thought, well, you could maybe hit some, score some runs, maybe catch them in a good day, outscore them. They have three legitimate aces this year. Jordy Ball, you got Alex Taraco, and, and, and Nicole May is having her best year of her career. They have three legitimate aces. Nobody else in the country can say that. Uh, and that's why it feels tough because you've got to play close to a perfect game. You look at this past weekend with Oklahoma State, they had them. They were up 2-0. Uh, they were in the seventh inning. And what happens? A base hit, base hit. Next thing you know, boom, boom, boom. Oklahoma hits you at three runs and, and knocks you out and gets the victory. That's the thing. You've got to play 21 solid outs if you're the opponent against Oklahoma because the room, the margin for error is very small because this Oklahoma pitching staff doesn't give you much. Uh, so you're right. It feels inevitable. But, you know, I, I, I'm one that believes that, you know, if Oklahoma loses in this Big 12 tournament to either Texas or Oklahoma State, which I think are the only – or Baylor, for that matter – I don't think Patty Gass will be devastated by that because sometimes that could refocus a team. So I do wonder if, you know, there's a, we'll see how they come out with it, but it, they, you got to play a perfect game. And you bring up a topic that a lot of people have brought up is Oklahoma's dominance in softball, good or not good for softball in, in general. We'll see. The, uh, the good news is people like to watch Oklahoma. You know, you look at Oklahoma State, Bedlam drew nearly 500,000 viewers, the most watched college sporting event of the weekend the second most watched college softball game of the season so they are a tv draw but your 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 feelings are shared by other softball fans that hey once we get to oklahoma city is this going to feel anticlimactic it's a conversation for the offseason if it looks like oklahoma is going to be in the same spot next year looking at just an obvious repeat of oklahoma fans aren't going to like the conversation but like one even in college football there's at least a little bit of variety if you have one team that just absolutely dominates a growing sport does that start to stunt your growth and so it is a conversation to have this offseason we're not going to have it right now um oklahoma doesn't matter what happens here they're going to be the number one overall seed they're going to be the number one overall seed again the the conversation is can somebody actually beat them when they get to oklahoma city not like how far are they going to go um, so let's set Oklahoma aside. It feels like they're going to win this, especially with a second-round matchup against either Iowa State or Baylor. I know Iowa State's resurging, but I'm not going to pick Iowa State. And Baylor, who we don't know if they're going to have Dari Orme, who did not play this past weekend right. in Baylor's sweep over Texas, and we don't know what's going on there. It, the vibes aren't great about that situation, but Baylor hasn't really said anything either way. So we're not sure there, despite uh, uh, some incredible pitching performances in that series for Baylor this past weekend. So I'm going to kind of take Baylor off the plate. But what does Baylor, which I think is an interesting situation, the one I really want to talk about, because heading into that series with Texas, after losing two of three to Iowa State, dropping that series, it felt like their hosting chance was was done. It felt yeah. like it was shot. Yeah. And then they go and take and do a full three-game sweep of Texas and bump themselves back up to 17th and adjusted RPI and feel like they're right back there with a shot to to grab one of those final host spots. Is a win over Iowa State and a loss to Oklahoma going to be enough, you think, for them to maybe get that 15th or 16th seed? It's a great question. It's something that I've wrestled with this entire week and will continue to wrestle with potentially this rest of this week. Uh, you look at their metrics, seven quad one wins, which are wins against top 25 teams, which includes a win against Oklahoma, which was a non-conference game, which is a whole other story. But they beat Oklahoma. They've got two wins over Tennessee, who won the SEC regular season title. They've swept Texas, as you mentioned. 15 wins overall, quad one and two. That should be good enough. 
But you brought up an interesting point. What is their health of or their pitcher? That could play a factor with the committee. Is they want to know is she going to be good for the regionals or not? Is she going to pitch this weekend or not? Uh, I think that plays a factor in that decision process. Also, I think they got to beat Iowa State. I don't think you can afford to lose to Iowa State if you're Baylor after sweeping Texas. You lose to Iowa State, you kind of open yourself up to be a two seed. I think there's two host spots that are available right now as we head into this final week. And it's between Baylor, Louisiana, Clemson. Uh, those are the three teams, unless so, an Auburn wins the SEC tournament and then they might sneak in as there as well. But Baylor, in a lot of ways, this might be controlled by Clemson. Clemson has to, in my opinion, get to at least the ACC championship game or win it to be a top 16 host. Their metrics are not great. If they don't do that, if they lose to Duke, that probably knocks them out and I think opens the door for a Baylor and Louisiana. My conspiracy theory, Philip, though, is, and the committee has told me this, they don't, the top 16 are the, they base it on the best teams, the 16 best teams. But there's a part of me that says, you know, Baylor and Louisiana can bust to each other. And we have that 400 mile radius rule that you're quite aware of. So mm -hmm. a part of me wonders, will the committee actually be willing to give both Louisiana and Baylor a host spot? Or is one of them going to have to travel to the other? And that's the tricky part about all this that we don't know that's going to go on in that room. Louisiana is a very polarizing team because they their metrics are phenomenal. They're in the top 10 in the RPI. They have four, top five schedule strength in the country. All the metrics would suggest that they should be a host. But if you've watched Louisiana, they don't jump out as a top 16 team, in particular, losing to Baylor. So that's what we're in store for. I think Baylor has a great shot to host, but they have to beat Iowa State. And we need to know what their health is going into that regional because the committee's going to want to know that. And if the Baylor's very nondescript about that, that actually could cost them a host region as well. Baylor with the seven quad one wins, very good. Those five quad three, no quad four losses, none, which is which is good. Uh, Clemson can't say uh, the same thing. But five, six and five in quad three, I think is what's really kind of dragging Baylor's agree. down a little bit. And, and it's, um, with, to put that in perspective, the other host contenders only have one or two quad three and four losses combined. So yeah. that is a significant number uh, that Baylor has. Now, the good news for them is that Iowa State series loss doesn't look as bad because Iowa State's made that jump to 76. But you're right. If Baylor doesn't host, they will point to all those quad three losses. And it's just a weird resume. It's one of the weirdest resumes. I've done this bracketology for a decade. You can beat Tennessee twice. You can beat Oklahoma. You can sweep Texas. But yet you lose two out of three to Iowa State. You drop a game to Kansas at home. You lose to Long Beach State. It's a it's a fascinating uh, resume for Baylor, but they're a dangerous team. Yes, agreed. No, no, it, the ceiling is high. Uh, the question, of course, is just going to remain: Do they have Orme? Because it just, that is the, Huge. that's such a difference maker from that. I understand they they're able to sweep Texas without her, but like for a team that has some head scratching losses to not have her on the mound at all could be a major issue. Okay, for Texas. Obviously, they've got a big game against Texas Tech to start off with, and then they'll face the winner of Kansas and Oklahoma State. Texas is going to host a regional this year. They will not be left out of hosting like they were last year. The question for Texas is this. Can they still get a top eight seed and guarantee themselves home field 
all the way through Supers to Oklahoma City. Are they still in the running there, or has was that sweep from Baylor that it knock them out no matter what happens in Oklahoma City? I think if they win the Big 12 tournament, that could get them back in the mix for the top eight seed. But I think that's what it's going to take, unfortunately. I had them in that 8-9 range going into that Baylor series, and they got swept. And now their RPI is 11 as we talk. This is an interesting – Texas is an interesting yo-yo here. You, I could see them easily playing themselves into an you know, 8 to 11 range. They could also play themselves from an 11 to 14 range. That It's very polarizing, and it depends on how they do in this Big 12 tournament and what else happens elsewhere. You know, they don't have as many top 50 wins, quad one and two wins as some of the other hosts, but I agree with it. They're going to host, but the seeding thing, Texas is the one that it's going to be the most broad. How do they care? Do they beat Oklahoma State for a fourth time? That would be a strong argument for them to, I think, be at least a top 10 seed, top 11. But if they were to lose to Oklahoma State or if they lose in the opening round to Texas Tech, uh, that could bump them down to a 12 to a 14 seed. So I think this is there's a lot to play for if you're Texas because you don't want to be in that 13, 14, 15 range because now you're, you're looking into possibly playing a UCLA or a Florida State type in the Super Regionals on the road. So a lot to play for, I think, for Mike White and the Longhorns. But let me just say this. I think Mike White's done a heck of a job with that Texas team, considering how young they are. I actually, I've been surprised that we're even having this conversation about Texas. I thought they would take a step back. They have not. Watch out for Texas next year. I think they're going to be a top five, top 10 team preseason next year. Yeah, that that young roster, the freshman class he brought in is incredible. Um, they're just going to keep getting better. Okay, Oklahoma State. Two and 10 in their last 12. This was a team who at one point was number two in the country, number two in the RPI. Now you had a significant slide. They're still number five in adjusted RPI. Their resume still is very good. But this is a team coming into the postseason that there are some real questions about. And it's kind of across the board. Pitching hasn't been as elite as it was to start the year. The offense has definitely not been averaging just 1.7 runs per game in the 10 losses in this stretch. Is this are, are they in danger of losing a top eight seed or do they feel comfortable as long as they get past Kansas being able to remain at home through Supers? I think as long as they get past Kansas, they will be a top eight seed. Now, where they're seated in the top eight remains to be seen. I think if you would have, we would have three, four weeks ago, we would have said they're easily a lock for a three seed. Maybe they were pushing UCLA for the two. Now that thing is very wide open. I think it could go anywhere from a – they could still get to a four, but they could also be an eight, and that's because of their slump. But I think we we tend to overreact to how teams finish, and the committee has told me this. They look at the entire body of work. You look at Oklahoma State's body of work, 20 wins against quad one and two teams, top 50. Nine quad one wins, including three top ten wins in the resume, which includes a series win against Florida State. That's going to carry a lot of weight from a resume standpoint. So that's why I don't believe Oklahoma State will be out of the top eight unless they were to lose to Kansas. And then I think alarms and sirens will be thrown all over the place. Uh, I think if they get to the, you know, the, the better the Big 12 tournament result they have, I think the much more comfortable the committee will have seating them maybe in that four to six range. But if they lose early to Texas again, maybe they're closer to that eight seed. But you're right, regardless of where they're seated, there's a lot of questions with Oklahoma State. Kelly Maxwell is not the same pitcher she was last year. Uh, she's not as sharp. 
and their offense has stopped hitting. They were one of the best offenses in the country the first couple of months. They have stopped hitting for extra base hits. Uh, they're not scoring runs. It, 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 I, and I don't know what the issue is. Some people have suggested to me that maybe the pressure has gotten to them a little bit because the expectations are super high. This was a team that was literally out, uh, nine outs away from playing for the national championship last year. And I wonder if all that pressure and all that weight of trying to keep up with Oklahoma this year has caught up to some of these players. Uh, we'll see if they could fix it. They need a good showing here in this Big 12 tournament. Otherwise, they could be a team that a lot of people wonder if they even can get out of the regional, regardless of what seed they are. Yeah, I've seen a lot of projection with them having to face Wichita State at home. That is not a favorable that's matchup. A, that is not that is a favorable a matchup for them. Team that's already beaten them twice, including once in Stillwater. We could talk about midweek games all day, but, you know, this isn't baseball. You're you're still playing one of your top three pitchers, your top two pitchers in that situation. So that is not uh, who they want to see in their regionals, that's for sure. Uh, it should be a very uh, – there's a lot of intrigue here, I think. Uh, because of all the, the situations between just hosting or top eight seeds, that these are really some big games to pay attention to, especially that second round game if we get an Oklahoma State and a Texas matchup. Eric, I appreciate your time as always. I look forward to. Uh, I mean, look, I got softball on right now. Like I've just got another. So do I. I got to do post game pressers and get ready to uh, go to Tampa to cover the American Conference Championship, the last Poor one guy. that I'll be Poor covering. Guy. Yeah, so. <laughs> I understand. Got to do what you got to do, but I'll be covering other tournaments and then obviously Selection Sunday's here before you know it, so it should be a fun time. Cannot wait. Eric, always appreciate it. Everybody, make sure you're listening to In the Circle podcast. Uh, it is, I think it's the best college softball podcast, and there's a few out there now. There are a few different options, but I think you you guys do a fantastic job covering the sport, the whole country, covering everything, providing the information everybody wants to hear. And uh, everybody go listen to that Cat Osterman Interview. Exclusive interview, Cat Osterman breaking down the Big 12 in depth. No, I mean, who better to talk Big 12 softball than Cat Osterman? Eric, appreciate it, man. Anytime, Phil. Welcome one, welcome all, and you are listening live to the one, the only Tortillas and Takes podcast. From football to softball to track and field, tune in to get the best coverage in everything that is Texas Tech. Not only that, but find out what unsuspecting star we get to interview and put on the hot seat. Whether you like corn or flour, eating them or throwing them, this tortilla is for you. So listen to Tortillas and Takes. And as always, stay wrecked, people. Big 12 Softball Championship gets underway on Thursday. Huge, huge event in Oklahoma City that if you have an opportunity to go to, you should. I would love to be there, alas, when your daughter's first birthday is on Thursday, the first day of the tournament, um, you know, dad work wins over uh, going to see softball. But here to preview the tournament and talk about a, a lot of other things. Very excited to have two uh, Kansas softball seniors joining us today, Haley Harper and Ashley Anderson. Ladies, welcome to the 10-12. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so... Let's start here. You know, you are in two very different, I would say, situations heading into this weekend. Haley, uh, this is your last season at Kansas. You're not going to be using your COVID year while Ashland uh, is going to be come back for one more season. So, I, I'm, Haley, I, I want to start with you. I mean, this weekend could be the end of the run at Kansas, barring um, uh, basically winning the Big 12 championship and having an opportunity to go to regionals. I mean, how are you going into this weekend? How are you kind of dealing with the, some of those thoughts, or have you pushed those to the side until after the, the final out? Um, so we actually did senior day um, Sunday of last week. So I kind of got all those emotions and feels out of the way, I think. 
um, that was a pretty emotional weekend for me. But I think for the most part, all those um, last kind of emotions are out of the way for me. So I'm just excited to go into this um, Big 12 tournament. Um, not really thinking it's going to be our last because you never want to do that. But I'm just going to embrace every game that I get to play in and just hopefully go out with a bang. Obviously, Sunday was a big one uh, with a nice bottom of the seventh inning walk off on senior day. I, I don't I mean, I'm not sure you could have a more dramatic fashion victory in the, in your final home game uh, as a Kansas softball player. Yeah, no, it was so crazy. I've watched the seventh inning of that game probably 10 times over and each time it just gets better. But yeah, it was so surreal to be to be playing in that game. I couldn't even imagine like my parents watching it. They were probably so stressed. But um, yeah, it was it was a good one. What would you say was the moment really, really sunk in for you on Sunday of like, this is the last time I will play here on this field? Well, actually, the top of the seventh, I there was two outs and I just started thinking to myself, I was like, wow, like after this out, like I'm running off this field for the last time in a game setting. And I kind of started getting teary eyed and I was like, OK, we can't do that. Like we can't we can't have emotion out here right now. Um, but then after that third out, it got hit to my fellow seniors, Peyton in right field, and she caught it and she ran in and I did just so much emotion. Like I started tearing up on the way out. I gave her a hug, started tearing up in the dugout and my assistant coach, coach Wiggs, he looked at me, he said, what are you doing? You have to bat. And I was like, okay. And so I ran to the locker room. I like got myself together and I was like, yep came back out, put on my helmet. And sure enough, I was up to bat and like two batters. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's awesome. Gotta, you gotta shake it off quick and get back at yeah, them. Yeah, uh, I know. Ashlyn, uh, again, you're going to come back for your COVID year. So it wasn't your last year, but I mean, you, you came up with Haley, you were part of the same recruiting class uh, as well as some of the other seniors who may or may not be sticking around. What, what's that what are the emotions for you of knowing I've got another year to play, but I, it's not going to be alongside some of these girls that I've been with here for, for my entire career? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really sad, honestly, thinking about it, because, I mean, Haley and I lived together freshman year along with two other of the seniors. And so it's just really sad to think about, not to mention I've also played against two of the other girls in high school ball growing up because we're all from Kansas. And so I just remember... Haley was in the locker room crying. I was like, Haley, come on, we got to go. And so we went out there. The game finished, but it's just so crazy to think about that we've been playing this game for 16, 17 years of our lives. And just one day, it's just going to be all over us. And it's going to be it's going to be upsetting not to have Haley next to me in the field next year. What led to your decision to go ahead and, and come back and use that COVID year? Uh, well, I still need to finish my undergrad degree. And so, I mean, it might as well, if I'm going to be in school, I might as well play softball as well, you know. Don't just finish it off quite yet. Has the the thought that you're going to be, obviously you're a senior this year, so you've got to be one of the leaders, but to come back and be a fifth-year senior, a super senior, that much more, you know, put on your shoulders as, as, a, as a leader in the program, has that started to kind of sink in for you yet? Honestly, no, not really, because next year we'll have seven other seniors, I think. So there will be eight of us that are like, I guess, um, leaders on the team. And it's just insane to think about that the year after that, there's going to be eight of us leaving. Man. Yeah. That's a, that's quite a few. That's quite yeah. a few. <laughs> so obviously 
the regular season is over. Big 12 championship gets underway on Thursday. You uh, you will open with, with Oklahoma State. I, I, how does the mindset for a tournament versus like just a regular weekend series? Is it just, just any other game? Like I know the coach speak, but like is there a difference in mindset going into this than there is, especially knowing like at this point it's, it's win or the season's kind of over. Is there a different mindset going into this than there is just a regular weekend series? Uh, there, I think there definitely is more of a mindset. I mean, we obviously go out there every day to win, but I think it's the fact that we're in Oklahoma City on the Hall of Fame field playing against a great team, OSU. I think the mindset does change. Like, we're going to be on a huge stage. And, you know, Haley said it best earlier. She said great teams beat great teams every day. And so I think for us, it's a mindset of we're not going to finish first game we're gonna like try our hardest to make sure we get it past the first round yeah no I mean obviously the mindset doesn't change we go into every game wanting to win we have um, a game plan based on the team but the mindset doesn't really change um like Ashlyn said we're just gonna we're gonna go in there we're gonna put our best foot forward um we're gonna attack everything that we can on our side um pitching hitting fielding we're gonna do put our best foot forward in all three of those categories. And yeah, like Ashlyn said, great teams beat great teams every day. So it's just, we're just, it's just going to be like a battlefield. Like we're going to be giving it all we have. I know that for sure. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled. I think the big 12 uh, softball championship is a, it's a fantastic event. I, I, I know I'll be uh, tuned in to, uh, to all the games on Thursday. Uh, what has this season been like? for this team. I mean, it's been a little bit of an up and down year. Um, you've had some, some high highs, I think some incredible wins. I mean, you're just, just knocking off Wichita state, not just a couple of weeks ago, I think was a big one having the win over Ole Miss earlier in the season. But what has the season been like for you, especially you Haley, knowing it's your, it's your final year. Um, you've said it best. Like we've had some high highs. We've definitely have some low lows throughout the season, but um, I could not be more proud of, of our team this season. We, literally have not given up in any game and I think that was evident in our last Iowa State game like there was there's no quit in this team absolutely no quit and just the fight and the desire and the passion to win has just not gone down at all throughout the season and that's something that I think a lot of teams don't necessarily have like usually they start off really good at um at the beginning of the season because they're all like amped up ready to go and then it kind of trickles down to the end of the season but um our drive and our passion like hasn't wavered at all so I think that's one of our strong suits that's a good characteristic that we have and I think that alone could take us really far um I agree with everything that Haley says I think another thing that we really have going for us our team chemistry there every single girl on the team gets along really well we're all pretty much best friends. I mean, we live with each other. We're on the road with each other all the time. We're at practice together every single day. And so I think at the end of the day, that's what matters is that you know for a fact that you can trust the girl next to you and that, I don't know, you guys just have that bond over the sport. And I think that's what this uh, season was really about for us, making sure that we always had each other's back because say I strike out, I know Haley's going to be up next to me or up after me. Um, getting a base hit you know she's gonna help me out and she's gonna do her job yeah that's definitely one thing about this team is like our chemistry this year compared 
to the other years that I've been here is just unmatched, like night and day difference. So that, that leads me to kind of the next question. You, you were all part of coach McFall's second class there at Kansas. And I always feel like the second class is kind of the first class. Cause when you're a new head coach, you, you kind of coming in, you got to get a recruiting class together quickly. That, that second class is the first one you've been able to really spend the time building the relationships with while they're in high school. And so what do you, what do you believe is the legacy that, that this class that you two have been a part of is that you will leave when, when you both end up moving on to, to other things? What is the legacy you feel like will be left behind by this class? I think um, first and foremost, like we changed kind of the thought process behind wanting to put this team on the map, if that makes sense. Like we came in um, our freshman year and we were like, yeah, like we're good. Like we're going to put Kansas softball on the map. Like we're going to do what no other team has done before us. And we're going to change the trajectory of this team. And we stuck with that year in and year out. And I mean, it's shown this, the senior year, like it's definitely shown, like we left Kansas softball better than we found it. And that was our goal since day one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Haley and I are both two of the four team captains that we have. And I think this year we've done a great job, like Haley said, we changed the trajectory of the team. And I think also we changed the way that leadership has been built in the past, because I think us four captains this year, I mean, last year too, we've really started to get a grasp on like what leaders need to do and how we need to have a successful team. And I think we've done a great job with turning this program around and we're only a step closer to where we should be and where we need to be. And it helps that, and it helps when your teammates and your coaches like trust each other. Like that has also been a huge part of the reason why we are able to like um, keep building this program is because the trust between the teammates and within the team and the trust between the coaches and the captains and the team in general is just everyone's open to ideas and thoughts. And we just, that's how we grow as a collective unit is just by trusting each other. I mean, look, I, I do think this has been Coach McFall's best team since she got to Lawrence. So I, I think everything you're saying holds water. Um, I, I Record aside, like this has been a very competitive team. I've been able to watch quite a few games for Kansas. You guys don't give up. You do have a ton of fight in you. And I do think that this program, again, I do think this program is better now than even when it was when she got there. And I think this, this class has been a big part of that. And I, the future looks very bright especially with some of the young players there in Lawrence, we will expect to see uh, for the next few years. Okay. We've talked about coach McFalls. We mentioned her a few times. We've had the pleasure of interviewing her here on the show, but I, I got to ask you both for a good coach McFall story. I just, I, we, we get to talk to her, but I really, it's those behind the scenes when no, the cameras aren't watching and the mics aren't on and it's just you and the, you and the coaching staff. I need a good coach McFall story. I think one that I just think is hilarious and it's so on brand for her is there was one day, it was it was a morning, probably like 7 a.m. We were at the hotel, it was this season, and the fire alarms start going off. And mind you, we've never seen McFalls without a face of makeup on or like her hair done, like her looking fully presentable. And so we all get outside and we're like, oh my God, this is our time to see her like not presentable <laughs> and what she hates doing. She didn't even come outside. She did not come outside when the fire alarms were going off because she was going to do her hair and makeup before she had to leave. 
And I just think it's so unbrand for her to like always be presentable and all. <laughs> it's just so funny to me. <laughs> I would say not really like an like a story story, but for being a gold medalist and like an all-American shortstop, anytime the ball comes to her, like in, in her direction in a game or in practice, she lets out like a yelp and she jumps out of the way every time. Like for being a gold medalist and a great shortstop back in her day, she does not want the ball to come in her direction anymore, <laughs> which in her defense, it comes off the bat pretty, pretty fast. But every single time she yelps and jumps out of the way the without, is, without fail. It's not even a yelp. It's like a four-year-old girl scream. <laughs> it's so high <laughs> Every time. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic that's awesome. <laughs> uh all right so uh, Haley for you since obviously your your career is coming to an end I mean obviously you've got a lot of memories a lot has happened during your four years in Lawrence what are what are some of the moments and the memories that you think are, are going to stand out to you most as you sit here and chat with us I honestly think that like just the times with my teammates that not even like softball related some of them just the times that like I get to spend with my teammates outside of softball even um we have very very funny and good memories from a lot of those times but um yeah I I don't even know like there's just a lot of things that I'm gonna miss but yeah I don't I can't even like express right now like without probably tearing up about how much I'm going to miss my teammates. So, but well, I've never made anyone cry on the podcast before. Yeah, I don't want now. to. So I'm it's just okay. going to stop there. It's okay. yeah, we're going to, we're going to stop there. Then you would never let me use the video on YouTube. So that's okay. No, um, <laughs> no. Ashlyn, I know you've got another year, but, uh, but same questions for you. I mean, what, what are some of the memories you're going to have, especially with, with the seniors who are moving on that you've come up with? Honestly, I'm kind of sticking with like and Jordan. It's insane because six a.m. weights is horrible, but that's what I'm gonna miss is like us being together and embracing the suck together at six in the morning when we're all on each other's last nerves. Yeah, I will say like one of the worst things I've ever done, but I have been so thankful to have done it with a team was running the hill. We have a camp, we have like the Campanile on our campus is on this huge hill. It's right up, like right beside the football stadium. And this hill is just massive. And we as a team had to run it last year at like six in the morning to make it even worse. There's snow um, on the ground. Yeah, snow, freezing cold, like could not feel your feet, but we ran it like four to five times. And I have never been so happy and so thankful that I was doing it with a team because I knew if I was doing it by myself, I wasn't making it up the hill. Yeah, but, and that, that hill plays tricks on you. You're yeah. looking at it and he's telling you you're going to run it four times. You're thinking that's no problem. It's the most it. deceiving hill. Yes. Because it never stops. It doesn't stop. Oh, and then it just gets steeper as the higher you go. Yeah. And then one of the times we had to carry a med ball. And oh my gosh, the med ball was so hard. It was like 100 pounds. What I was so heavy. I literally couldn't even carry it. I had to pass my turn to Bruno. I was like, come on, Bruno. <laughs> but it it was brutal. But I can assure you, I will never be running that hill again, unless it's with that team. Yeah, <laughs> for whatever reason. 
Ooh, that sounds not fun. Um, that would be the embrace the suck, as you mentioned. That's actually. the embrace the suck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so I've asked the, some of the players that we've had on the show. I've been able to ask this, and I've different answers, of course. But so far, it seems like everyone's kind of got like a team song for the season. Something that whenever it gets played in the locker room or on the bus, everyone gets hyped to. Like, do you guys have a a kind of a team song for this year? We definitely do. We I do. can't think of it off the top of my head. I mean, the only thing I could think of is the new Drake song. I feel like when Jordan plays it in the back of the bus, everyone gets up and starts singing. Like even Sav will take her headphones off before a game and start singing. Jordan's our Jordan's our music girl. Yeah, she always has two speakers and they're always connected. But I would, yeah, our team's a really big Drake. We're really big Drake fans. Yeah, or J Rock songs, I guess. Do our little dance. We did. We did. We do a little dancey dance. Yes, KU KU athletics dance competition every year with all the sports teams and so each sports team gets a genre and our genre was 90s and so we compiled a bunch of songs together and then Casey Hamilton our pitcher she's an amazing dancer and so she always choreographs the dance routines but we ended up getting first place this year which is hype yeah yeah Yeah, thank you thank you you can maybe find the dance on YouTube I don't know (laughs) Deep dive is about to occur after the kids are in bed tonight. All right. (laughs) No, but I would just say, yeah, we have constant music going in the back of our bus. There is not a time where it's silent and in our locker room. But I wouldn't say we necessarily have a song. Our team just could literally get lit to the ABCs, I swear. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, I, I I don't know if I can come up with a better way to end than that. Uh, Haley, <laughs> Ashlyn, you have both been incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, Haley, uh, to what is next for you? Good luck. Uh, I wish you. you nothing but the best. Uh, Ashlyn, to your to your final COVID season. Can't wait to have you on the show and talk th- about that again. And to this weekend, like, uh, I, look, I, I hope this, this season ends on, on a high note for you ladies. I really do. Thank awesome. you Thanks. so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm Sam, and I co-host the Scott and Holm podcast, the known universe's first Houston Cougar sports podcast. Every week, even during the offseason, my co-host Dustin and I come on and talk everything current as it relates to the Cougs, and every so often, we'll bring on UH luminaries like Carl Lewis, Kellen Sampson, and a number of other fantastic Cougar voices, and as proud members of the 1012 Network, we also find the time to talk about our future conference and future opponents in the Big 12 as well, if all of that sounds even a little bit interesting to you, we would love it if you subscribe to the Scott Holm Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else you put podcasts in your ears. That's podcast spelled P-A-W-D cast because the two of us hosting the show are nothing if not big dorks. So thank you and go Cougs. The NFL draft is, of course, done, but now the real work begins for all 30 Big 12 players who were drafted this uh, a couple weeks ago, just because your name was called doesn't mean you're going to end up on a roster or have a long future in the NFL. So I wanted to discuss today and look at some of the players who has landing spots best situate them for potentially long careers or at least immediate success. So very excited to bring back on the show. It's been a minute. It's been too long. Our good friend Keegan Renault of RPM Data joining us today. Keegan, welcome back, bud. 
Always a good time. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. For those who only know you as a guy who covers OU, uh, explain what RPM data is so they kind of get an understanding of, of why I have you on the show today. A couple years back, uh, when I was over at Sooner's Wire, I hired a really, really smart guy named Stephen Plassance, who now works for the University of Oklahoma in a you know off the field support staff role for them. And you know, we started getting really deep and and taking a deeper dive into the film analysis and and statistical analysis of, of the game of football. And you know, we started to do some work leading up to the twenty twenty one or twenty two NFL draft, and we found. You know, some really interesting results in terms of the way the NFL was drafting players and paying their players. And, you know, we took that information, you know, to some people that work in that space. And they basically said, why are you essentially, why are you guys still doing what you're doing? Um, and so, you know, we turned, you know, a passion, uh, more project based things into reality. And so, you know, we've been working in this space for the last you know, we're not at the two year mark quite yet. We're about at a year and a half into the process of what we do at RPM. But, you know, essentially what we're able to do is to be able to identify players, um, you know, in in, this, in a scouting sense, you know, for people that are decision makers, whether it's agents or financial advisors that want to represent these players for their futures, NIL groups that, you know, want to take on, you know, potential marketing for players at the college level. Uh, or, you know, even as of the last couple of months, you know, I've been talking with some college football personnel and, and even people at the NFL level. So, you know, essentially what we're able to do is try to identify players with in the marketplace that have higher expected value. So, you know, in the layman terms of this, you know, if I'm working in commercial real estate, like I'm not going to take a general contractor or an investor to, you know, that apartment complex is in a rundown part of town and there's not a lot of demand for it. I'm also not going to take you to the apartment complex that eight other companies are wanting, you know, to purchase, right? You know, you're trying to find that right sweet spot of, you know, the place or land or house, whatever it may be, that is in the right part of town that does have a, you know, will have increased demand over the next couple of years. Um, and obviously, if we can identify that, that becomes very valuable for people in this space. So, um, you know, Philip's giving me the wide eye, crazy eye right now, but it's no different in the way that people operate in the oil and gas business to find wells or to find areas to drill. Um, it's it's no different. Um, and so, you know, that's essentially what we're doing in the football space. And it, it's been really fun. We've had we had really, really good results with our first full draft class in 2023. And, you know, we're very much looking forward to um, the next couple of weeks. We'll have the 2024 spring grades will be done. And, you know, obviously our goal, you know, the earlier you can get, the space is becoming a lot like college football recruiting to where that's getting earlier and earlier and earlier. NIL is a big part of that, um, where these agents and these decision makers can come in and have more of an impact at a younger age. And so that's pushing up the process for these people. Um, these people don't have a lot of time on their hands. Um, and so we can kind of come in and save them some time and identifying players in that process. So, yeah, we had some really, really good results. Um, you know, 89% ended up at the NFL combine of our recommendation for the 23 draft class. 76% of the players we recommended were drafted, um, including three. And we're going to talk about one on this podcast and Tyree Wilson, the defensive end from Texas Tech. But three of the four guys we recommended last year in the summertime ended up becoming first round picks. Um, and not just that, becoming picks in the first 11 picks of the NFL draft. So, you know, we're really 
really happy with our results. Um, and you know, and again, uh, it's really no different what we're doing than what people do in different industries and different spaces. It's just being turned into what you're doing in the game of football. So you mentioned Tyree Wilson, obviously the first Big 12 player off the board in the draft this year, going number seven overall to the Las Vegas Raiders coming out of Texas Tech. Why is Las Vegas a good landing spot for Tyree Wilson? You know, for one, I, I think Las Vegas is a, in a very particular situation, right? Like they have drafted some players early on since their move from Oakland um to las vegas that in terms of character in terms of the things you carry yourself with like tyree wilson's a guy from every all accounts from our end and and what you read out that he is going to handle himself very very well in las vegas and in those situations so you know i think this is a guy that you know for us at rpm we didn't have necessarily that high of of a draft grade on him you know to the texas tech people that are listening to this probably a few of you that i have talked to over the last couple months you know, this is a guy that's still really raw. And, you know, I think his, his his physical nature of who he is and his length and his size, don't get me wrong, the Big 12 was much better this year, but the one area over the last decade that has been a problem for this conference has been more along the offensive line than anywhere else. And that was the same situation it was this last year. And so, yes, were his pressure rates really, really high, something that in the analytics space and football that you want to see that does have – stability and the way it carries over to the NFL. Absolutely. Um, you know, is this a guy that can kind of sit behind uh, the star pass rusher that's in Las Vegas right now? Oh, sure. You know, Max Crosby is unbelievable. He's going to be a great resource uh, for a guy like Tyree Wilson over these first few years. But, you know, I think this is a guy also, also too in Las Vegas that, you know, they're not necessarily in a ready win now mode um, for them. And don't get me wrong, you get a you you make an investment into a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo and may, you know, some people think that they can maybe win a couple more games. But, you know, there's not going to be a lot of pressure for a guy like Tyree to come in and, and be an immediate, immediate star. And so that's just not who he's going to be either. And so this is a guy that's going to be able to have some time to really learn the nuances of being a pass rusher in the NFL and, you know, just be a have a little more to your game than just be able to, you know, bull rush people for an entire game or knock tight ends on their back. Like he did against TCU four or five times. You know, I think I said this last year, you know, we were completely robbed of seeing Anton Harrison against Tyree Wilson in that last game of the year. And I think that would have been a really good evaluation for both of those guys. Um, maybe both of them would have went lower in the draft if they had played against each other, who knows. Um, but I think this is a, you know, Tyree's a guy that in terms of like, the boom bust potential it's way high if it if it works out it could be really low if it doesn't and so you know las vegas took a big bet on him at number seven um but again i think this is a situation for one his character he fits in he's not going to do anything off the field related in las vegas that they've had some issues with in the past um that noise won't won't be a problem for him and two um i think this is a guy that is gets into a situation where when you have a guy like max crosby in front of him, he doesn't have to come in and be an immediate star in the league. And so that pressure will be off of him um, early on, which I think is going to be really needed. This is a guy that's going to take some time um, that he's going to have to grow his game at the NFL level because these tackles aren't <laughs> love the big 12 as much as I can. Uh, he's not going to be going up against that every single week anymore. All right. I love that. I think that's, that's a, a fantastic evaluation and uh, having a few years to get yourself ready and, and kind of, Learn things, I think, is always a positive. Even in the NFL, we always expect guys to just show up and immediately be contributors. And it's like, 
Yeah, there's there's guys like that, but there's also plenty who uh, are not <clears throat> ready to go day one to be a, a, a an all star. Uh, all right, Keegan, who's number two on your list here? You know, I think for one, I think in the first round, you know, there's a couple guys that you know may have come off the board that some people were surprised about. Um, you know, I, I I'm always intrigued to see how a guy like Anton Harrison is a true, you know, with the suspension that Jacksonville's offensive tackle has, like he's got to come in and play immediately. Is he a guy that's fully ready to go? Um, you know, I think Felix and Eduke Uzoma, I worked a long time on that last year. So I'm glad <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm able to say it on this podcast. You know, I think that's another guy coming into another favorable situation to where he doesn't have to be an immediate impact player for Kansas city in year one. Um, you know, but again, I, I think this was a, a year for the Big 12 where, you know, maybe, you know, you have the results, right? But necessarily, like, are these guys all having to come in and be the guys and be relied upon in year one? You know, probably not. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think one that definitely does stick out, a guy that I said last week that I may have missed more than any other prospect in the 2023 NFL draft. I mean, Steve Avila from TCU, the interior offensive lineman, you know, maybe he got grouped with a really, really poor TCU offensive line two years ago. And that's probably what, you know, I didn't take into account that when you're playing center, both your guards need to be good around you to make you look good. And it's the same problem. Maybe I had with Creed Humphrey at Oklahoma because Creed was sort of the same guy all three years but I didn't take into account that he had Drew Samia and Ben Powers, two NFL offensive linemen around him. And then he had Marquise Hayes and Tyrese Robinson, who, again, good college players. Marquise, obviously, is going to continue to get some chances in Arizona. But Avila going to the Rams, a, a situation to where he's going to be plugged in and pretty much immediately to play. And he's also going into a situation into an offense that will suit his game a lot of zone blocking this is a guy that is a solid interior as you're going to find um of anybody in this draft class uh specifically if he can play guard he can play center um i I think this is a guy that the rams aren't in a again they're the rams have made a pretty strong signal that they are deeply in the caleb williams we want we're going to do whatever it takes to be able to get a chance to get him and so he's not in a situation in Los Angeles that, you know, he's going to have a lot of pressure on him to pan out here in year one. Um, who knows with Matt Stafford's elbow and his health and what's going to end up happening there. But I think that's a, it's a system that fits him greatly. You know, I think of a guys that have amongst the most pressure, you know, Quinn Johnston with the chargers. I mean, they, Brandon Staley, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, that's a guy that you're sitting here, you know, at this time next year, and the Chargers are looking for a new coach. But, you know, they have an all-world talent quarterback. They really do have a lot of pieces in place for them to be successful. And one of the biggest complaints of them has been production from the receiver position. So, Quinn Johnston is of those guys that is going to be thrown into a situation where he's going to have to perform early on in his career, and there's going to be a lot of pressure for him um, to perform early on in his career. You know, and I think the other one that I obviously the biggest talking point of the draft over the last week or so in Bijan Robinson to Atlanta. I mean, this is a situation where, you know, they do have other running backs in that room that have produced before. You know, are you going to bet on Desmond Ritter to be a guy in Atlanta? And so, you know, like how much of that investment at the eighth overall pick into a running back 
Like, is that how, is that going to appreciate now? Is that going to, you know, or is it going to, are you going to have to wait kind of like with Dallas, right? With Ezekiel Elliott, are you going to have to wait until he's ready for an extension for him to start to pan out? And so we'll see. And obviously that didn't work out in Dallas for Ezekiel Elliott. So, you know, I, I think this big 12 and the draft itself, and there's a couple guys I'm going to talk about like beyond round one, you know, but I, I, I think this is a, you know, there's a couple guys that are going to have some pressure on them, but you know, for some, you know, a guy like Will McDonald, we didn't mention with the jets. Um, you know, I think that again, this is a, this was a year for the big 12 where it was sort of all building up to this last year of the league being really talented and really deep. And I think we hit on that on one of the preseason pods I did last summer. And now, you know, you're going to, you kind of came to fruition. And so it's really cool to see, you know, you had a lot of guys that, you know, ended up panning out and becoming high draft picks and, you know, we'll see what they're able to do. But, you know, I, I think I'm pretty happy for a lot of them that they're not heading into situations that they're going to be relied upon early on in their career. We're going to touch on the uh, <clears throat> talent drain here a little bit later, but I want to keep kind of going through the draft and talking about some of these draft picks. Third round, we've talked about the the first, and we've touched on uh, Steve Avila in the second round there. Uh, third round, uh, Kendra Miller going to New Orleans, Demarion Overshone uh, from from Texas getting drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Wanya Morris to the Chiefs, and Siaki Ika to the Browns. Anyone in the third round that sticks out to you as this was a great opportunity and a great spot for them? You know, you kind of got to this part of the draft and there were some players taken higher than, you know, I would have expected. Like a guy like DeMarvin Overshone, I think, comes immediately to mind. Like, don't get me wrong, like the flashes were incredible in college. They just weren't consistent. And so whenever you have a guy like that, specifically at an off-ball linebacker position, like how much value is there, you know, at that part of the draft? Like Wani Morris going to the top 100, you know, was pretty pretty surprised by that but you know the other one I think that in terms of situation that comes to mind that could be really helpful for him you know who's who knows what's going to happen with Alvin Kamara and his suspension situation in New Orleans like I think that could be a great spot for Kendra Miller to get a lot of run early on in his career um you know New Orleans isn't a win now situation you just traded for Derek Carr your cap situation has been horrible for a decade and it hasn't changed at all and so, you know, I think they're going to be asking of a lot of Kendra Miller early on in his career. And and again, this is a guy that, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say like he completely came out of nowhere by any means. But, you know, I think it, it is a guy that you get into, you get a little better offensive line play down in Fort Worth. Uh, Garrett Riley really knows how to run an offense. Weird. Um, and next thing you know, I, you look at a, you look at a guy like him that really took off, like, like, I don't know if Max Duggan is the guy he was last year without the running game with a guy like Kendra Miller. I don't know if TCU is the team they are without Kendra Miller. And, you know, I think we saw some of that, you know, at the end of the season when he was banged up at times. Um, and so I think that's a great, you know, great situation for him. Um, you know, I, I think the one thing I do want to touch on here, um, you know, man, was there any team or personnel or roster that ended up being more disappointing than Baylor last year. Um, you know, I think you would have asked me before the season, you know, may have had, you know, three, four guys get picked. Now you only have Siaki Ika who heading into the year was a, you know, surefire top 50 guy. And he just wasn't the same guy last year. I don't know if that was injury related. I don't know if that was, you know, guy that didn't, I hate to use the, always use the words like guy just, you know, 
off the field stuff for this or that, or didn't work as hard last off season. Cause I, I don't know those things, but he just really wasn't the guy he was the final eight games of the 2021 season when he was just absolutely dominant and nobody could block him. And, you know, he does get into a situation in Cleveland where they are in a dying need for defensive tackles. So we'll see what ends up happening with him at the NFL level. But yeah, you know, I think that, you know, there are some guys that were taken that I, I at this portion of the draft that I thought went a little bit higher than, you know, where we would have had them. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think, you know, a guy like Kendra Miller could benefit greatly. Um, Darius Davis, I think we're kind of in that range to talk about that. Like, was shocked to see him go as high as he did. You know, don't get me wrong, has all the speed in the world. But outside of running in a straight line, what does he essentially bring? You know, to an NFL team um, at that point in the draft. Uh, and then, you know, I think one guy to talk about here, you know, a guy that I think a lot of people in the Big 12 really, really like from afar, whether you are a Texas fan or not. But the what Roshan Johnson had to go through in his career in college, you know, I think is a great story and will continue to be a great story. And I think he gets into a great situation in Chicago where, you know, they move on um, from other Big 12 legend, David Montgomery. He gets traded. Um and then you end up, you know, going to be in a situation where Chicago's really to kind of push some of those chips in and be really, really good. And, you know, I think, you know, I don't know about Roshan's top end speed and how that's going to essentially translate, you know, to the NFL level. But this is a really hard runner, you know, a team guy, a guy that's going to be really good in pass pro. And so I think he's got a chance to stick at the NFL level for, you know, a good a good minute here. So, yeah, I th- again, I think at this portion of the draft, you had some guys go a little bit higher. You know, Darius Davis, I mentioned, DeMarvin Overshone, I mentioned. Um, and again, I think Siaki Ika and, and kind of what he went through last year was a little bit surprising. You know, he he really went from a guy that I think as an offensive coordinator, you had to, I mean, first part of your game plan going into a week, how are we going to block Siaki Ika two years ago? I mean, Philip, you know it better than anybody. Like, uh, he absolutely terrorized Oklahoma State for two straight games. And um, he became a guy that you were really worried about. And then he became a guy that was like, okay, he's manageable now. And it's just, was really weird to see in 2022, his fall off a little bit. Um, but again, he gets into a situation in Cleveland where they, I mean, are in a dying need for defensive tackles. So could end up being a really good situation for him. If he can kind of put those pieces back together. When you get down to the latter rounds of the draft, that sixth and seventh round, that's when you start looking for, steals right guys that you have as a as an organization have evaluated and brought into to your program and are able to do something with that maybe others weren't able to i, I think brock purdy mr relevant the perfect example of what's going on uh, in san francisco with him there as a potent guy who could potentially just be the starter despite other quarterbacks on the roster so as we look through this sixth and seventh round and there's a lot of guys from the big 12 through here quite a few um all the way from Josh Hayes, uh, who went to Tampa Bay out of Kansas State, uh, with one pick 181 in the sixth, all the way down to Mauro Jomo, to the Eagles at 249. Uh, who in this section of the sixth and seventh round do you kind of look at as, these these guys are steals. Maybe they went way lower than you thought that they should have, or they're just in a spot where they, they've got a real opportunity to, to, to build a career here. Yeah, you know, I think, for one, the one that immediately comes to mind, D winters backing up Fred Warner. And if Fred Warner goes down in that situation in San Francisco, like you couldn't have asked for a better spot for a guy like D winters, who uh, a guy that RPM really, really liked. And first, another guy that RPM really liked that I did not mention. I don't know much about the Colts structure defensively. 
Um, but I was harping on a guy named Julius Brents for all of about four months last year, um, leading up to the season and during the season. Um, I hope he stays healthy at the NFL. That was a problem for him in college at times. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of a riser last year, he had some like six, seventh round grades last summer. Um, and, you know, I was really happy to see him rise. But ultimately, I think a, a D Winters in terms of like situation, um, where he went, all those things. I don't know if you could have asked for a better spot for a guy like that. I mean, a guy that's going to be there. They're in a four down system. Your linebackers are more asked to shoot gaps and fill running, fill running lanes that, you know, your defensive linemen are clogging for you um, at times. And so, you know, I think Winters is in a great, great, great situation um, in San Francisco. You know, I think uh, of among other guys, you know, one guy that we saw at the end of, at the college level that we all really, really liked had some really weird drop issues last year. You know, I, 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 I know I went on a tangent the last couple of months about Marvin Mims and these drop issues that Oklahoma fans kept bringing up. And it's like, okay, the guy, guy had two games of bad drops is for three years and whatever. Xavier Hutchinson, it was a season long thing. And I don't know where it came from. It was not a problem. It was a guy that you could really rely upon on third down um, we knew his top end speed was not going to be good um, when he got to the combine and testing, but he gets into a situation in Houston with a rookie quarterback that is going to be looking for a guy that can be relied upon in those situations. And I'm going to bet Xavier Hutchinson is going to be fine. I think, um, you know, drops aren't necessarily like they don't correlate year over year over year. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening. But I think in terms of a guy that may have fallen to, you know, whether it's drops, injuries, whatever it may be. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening, you know, with that. You know, more of Jomo, it goes to Philly. That defensive tackle room is loaded now. Um, so I don't know necessarily, like, how much of an expectation, for one, he's going to be to make the 53-man um, for them. Um, but ultimately, if you're a guy that's on a practice squad in that situation in Philly, you know, one guy goes down, you're going to be asked to come in and do quite a bit. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening, uh, you know, with that. And then I think, uh, you know, a guy that I heard a lot during the draft process from people that were out at the NFL PA collegiate bowl, they fell in love with Anthony Johnson out of Iowa state. And, you know, I think he got, you know, mistaken a little bit at times. Oh my gosh. The name's escaping me that transferred to Ole Miss. Um, oh, if you can't fill in the blank for me here, I'm gonna have to look it up before I do, because I think we all loved him. Um, Ole Miss safety transfer Iowa State. The listeners are going to blow me up for this. For sure. <laughs> Ashim, Ashim Young, a guy that we all really, really like, that left Iowa State for Ole Miss. You know, Johnson moves from corner back to that position to really fill that need, and that's in John Hecox three three five, which that middle safety is one of the most important positions in that defense. And you know, I think he came in and did a really, really good job. So it was no surprise to see he did a really good job in the draft process. He impressed a lot of people down in Los Angeles at the NFL PA collegiate bowl. Um, and so we'll see what ends up happening, you know, with him, um, you know, a guy that goes in the seventh round. So, you know, I, I, I think the NFL did a really good job evaluating the league in general. Um, you know, and a guy here in the seventh round that I will mention that I really, really liked in college. I wish he was a half step faster in college. His combine 
40 surprised me quite a bit. Um, and a guy uh, here near and dear to our heart here in Oklahoma City and Jason Taylor, Carl Albert alum. Again, you know, a guy running a sub 4.540 at the Combine was really shocking to see. That's not what his speed says on tape, but you know, that's a guy that made a, a lot of plays in Stillwater over his career. And, you know, I think was really a anchor for them at times when the defense was a problem um, last year. So, you know, I think you know the, the, the NFL did a really good job evaluating the league, I think, in general. Um, and I think the league got its due. You know, I, I, I think this was the, the league was really, really talented last year. Um, and we'll see, you know, what ends up happening. You know, I guess I should mention Max Duggan could end up being Matt Stafford's backup next year. You may see another Big 12 quarterback, you know, getting a chance to get some playing time, depending what Stafford's health looks like, or if they're in the tank for Caleb room, like we'll see if they just bench Stafford and let it be what it is. But, you know, I think the league did a really good job evaluating the big 12 and the big 12, you know, we, we talked about how talented it was for a long, long time and um, specifically what it was going to be in 22. So it was good to see it come to fruition. Touch on that next. I do want to ask about one player in particular. Obviously it was the, uh, I think it was the best story or best moment from the draft is obviously Deuce Vaughn's father getting to call him to say, you want to come to work with me next week? I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. A lot of onions getting cut uh, for people watching that video. Uh, Deuce Vaughn going to Dallas. I mean, how do you feel about that landing spot in particular? Well, you know, they get rid of Kellen Moore because they want to establish a run more, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Quotes <laughs> all over that. You know, I like Deuce was always going to be a polarizing evaluation. You know, this is a guy that I I think in terms of his ability to run between the tackles, like I don't have a ton of questions about that. You know, I don't have a ton of questions, obviously, about his receiving ability out of the backfield. But, you know, if you're going to be a backup running back and, you know, look at one guy that from the Big 12 that has stuck around for a while and Simon J. P. Ryan, where, you know, I think some people had obviously like two opposite polar of the polar opposites of the spectrum here. You know, a guy that was known for his bruising ability as a running back, but Samaje's pass pro has kept him in the NFL. Specifically, he was replacing Joe Mixon on third downs in key situations just because he could pass block, right? And, you know, as a backup running back in the NFL, that's something that you're going to be asked to do quite a bit. And, you know, I, obviously that's going to be a major, you know, question, you know, for Deuce and it's just his size. And, you know, I think this is a guy that can, you know, be productive at that level. Um, you know, obviously the Darren Sproles thing is going to be a real, real conversation, you know, in Dallas, you know, just let him, you know, give him some playing time and let him see what he can do. Um, but I do think the questions were valid, um, specifically with him being in a backup role early on in his career. So we'll see. You know, I think Dallas is in a situation right now to where, you know, they're trying to figure out what their identity is going to be offensively and, you know, once we kind of get a better picture of what that looks like, like in Kellen Moore's system, I would sit here and tell you, I think that would have been a much better situation for him. Um, but, you know, if they're going to really get under center more and, you know, a lot more play action and, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I, I would have wanted to see him in, in maybe some different situations. You know, I think everybody may have wanted to see him stick a little closer to Kansas to Manhattan where Kansas state's located in Kansas city um but at the end of the day i think you know really cool story i think being able to do that and dallas has a need right like dallas went into the draft having a need at running back and you know be able to get their guy and deuce vaughn i think you know could end up being 
you know, big for them. But at the end of the day, we'll see kind of what their system, offensively, what their identity is going to be and how that plays and how Deuce's role is going to be there for the Cowboys. As we've teased this, I've got to ask it now. The conversation we've been having a lot this offseason about the Big 12 is is if you want to figure out who's going to get into the Big 12 title game, it's which teams are on the come up. Because this isn't a a conference anymore, especially once Oklahoma and Texas leave, of there's going to be one dominant team who's there in the title game every single season. It's which teams are on the come up, which teams have are peaking in the right year. Um, and, and it almost kind of feels like the Big 12 just went through that as a conference as a whole last season. You look at the the talent drain, the P, the names that you have recognized and known for the last few seasons, especially on defense. You look at Kansas State and Iowa State and the guys that were drafted. It does feel like there was a talent drain. Yes, you're going to bring in transfers. Yes, you're going to have guys who who step up and fill those roles and develop and become the new names that we know. But it it just feels like there's been some guys who we have just been staples of Big 12 schools who have been good, or at least sides of the ball that have been good for the past two, some in some cases, three years that are gone now. How, does this feel like a situation for the Big 12 of it's going to be kind of a come down year for the conference as a whole? Or do you have, are you already looking at guys saying like, I think the Big 12 is going to be fine because the, some of the guys they have ready to come in and take those spots are going to be able to, to do at least an admirable job of replacing the guys that are gone, or if not better. I think it's always important to remember like the big 12 in terms of recruiting. And I know it's talked about ad nauseum, but there's, of course there's, there's, it comes in waves. Like I think if you're not Oklahoma, you're not Texas, like your goals should always be every third or fourth year. You're able to really recruit your roster and build it up and, you know, be able to really put a very talented roster together. And, you know, I think COVID and having that extra year of eligibility really allowed some of these schools to have, you know, some guys come back that are very talented. So, you know, I think the league from a talent perspective, like, like drain may not be the necessarily right word for it. Like, are we going to see the fruits of some of the labor like this year? Maybe not. Um, You know, like I, I have no idea. Like I, I jokingly put this out a couple of weeks ago, like, like Kansas State may go from having a really sound defense the last couple of years, you know, two years ago was among one of the best defenses in the country to like now they are going to score 50 a game and give up 30 a game and maybe still win 10 games next year. Like, I think, you know, that the league in general is going to go through a little, you know, I don't know, the evolution is not the best word for it. I don't think the identity of the league is going to change, you know, all that much, but you know, the talent that got drafted this year, they were young four years ago. Um, they were young three or four years ago when we were all really, really, really excited about it. And now I think you're kind of in that same situation. Um, you know, you do have a guys coming back, like, you know, no, not Oklahoma and Texas are always going to have talent. So schools that aren't them. You do have some, you have some guys coming back to school, like in Lubbock, you've got some interior defensive linemen that, you know, may not be, you know, top end draft guys, but, are going to be guys that are going to be taken like, you know, round six, round seven, that you're going to have a chance, you know, to have some success there. Uh, Kansas state with Cooper BB coming back to school. Like that's a guy that's a surefire top hundred pick next year. I think he'd have been a top hundred pick this year. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that the, the talent that is going to be coming is young. Um, and we may not know who they are yet either. Um, you know, I think Iowa state has a very young safety that, you know, not a lot of people are talking about this offseason that 
really fits what they do really well. They have a corner in TJ Tampa that I really like, um, you know, but we'll see um, kind of winds up happening. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily like a talent drain by any means, um, but definitely, you know, one of those situations where I think, like I said, three or four years ago, the guys that we were really excited about or two or three years ago are the guys that just got drafted. So these guys just may be younger, um, but it's still going to be, again, I, I think this league in terms of identifying the talent across the board is really, really, really good. And there's a reason why whenever you have recruited, you know, a league wide average, you know, outside of Oklahoma and Texas around a 19%, you know, blue chip ratio. Like, I think that that's, it speaks to volumes to how well this league evaluates talent, you know, across the board. So, you know, we'll see what ends up happening, but I just think the talent's younger. I don't think it's in terms of like changing, you know, we may not see it for two to three years from now. And then you add in schools like BYU and Cincinnati who are actually really talented you know maybe not maybe not Cincinnati's offense but Cincinnati's defense still has some carryovers from that last staff um that I think we're all going to get accustomed to over the next you know few months you know a couple guys at safety a guy at linebacker an interior defensive lineman I think everybody in the country country would want you know BYU sort of in the same situation they've got a couple offensive linemen I think a lot of schools around the country would want um you know and so you know, I think that the league itself, this talent is going to be a little bit younger. Some of these new schools do have some guys that, you know, are coming in um, that are talented. Um, yeah, I didn't mention UCF and, and Houston. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're as talented as, as BYU and Cincinnati will be. But again, I just think the talent's going to be younger. And this is, this is, this is what this league goes through. It goes through waves where you have a school like Kansas state who may have some staying power here, if they can get the right mixture of, you know, young guys offensively and young guys defensively panning out together. Um, and obviously what's going down in Lubbock is going to be interesting to, to watch this season. Um, I think there's a, there are expectations again in Lubbock, um, which is a little bit different than what it's been the last, you know, seven, eight years. So we'll see. Um, but I, again, I, I think, the big 12 is always going to go through these transition phases where you have one team like DCU come up and then another team will show up and, you know, do their thing. So, yeah, it took Oklahoma state four or five years to put the team they put together in 2021, which is really, really, really good. Um, and so we'll see what kind of is up happening, but I would, I would assume, and again, I know I don't live in a world of assumptions, but I would assume that, you know, it's going to be kind of that same cycle that we've seen the big 12 go through the last decade where, you know, every three, four years, you're going to have, you know, the league is going to be pretty talented and pretty good. Um, and you're going to go through that same transition um, again here. So we can just call this the beginning of a new kind of uh, development cycle. Like there's still talent there. Obviously there's still guys um, at the end of their careers who are talented who have come back for another year to play, but it does feel like it is the start of a, of the next two to three year development cycle where we come back here in 2025, 2026, we're going to be talking about how how deep and loaded the Big 12 is with talent and guys who are going to go in and hear their names called in the draft. Keegan, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Do me a favor. Where can everybody follow you and uh, and learn more from you about I mean, talent in college football and, and, and NFL draft and so on and so forth? Yeah, I don't necessarily talk about it a whole ton because I just try to keep my cards close to my chest as much as I can. But if you are interested in it, it's at Keegan Renault, K-E-G-A-N-R-E-N-E-A-U. Uh, yeah, you are a cards close to the best guy. That's good, though. Kagan, always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you back on again soon, bud. Absolutely. Have a good one.
Sports Social Podcast Network.